your reading this evening. And good evening, Calvary Chapel Freiburg. Great to be with you on this uh, summer Sunday evening. You guys full of joy at being here together with the people of the Lord? I don't want that to sound uh, cliched or, or uh, shallow, but uh, I think it's good to remind ourselves this should be a joyful occasion where we come together to worship God and to hear from His Word. I'm certainly um, yeah, filled with joy to be with you guys here this evening. Now, um, as I just said, uh, thanks to Lawrence for the scripture reading, and you will have noticed from the reading that we are back in uh, the Psalms, and that generally means, you can feel it in the air temperature as well, that it's summer here at Calvary Freiburg. It's a tradition that's established itself over these last six or seven years at least. It's one that I'm happy about, uh, that every summer as a congregation, as a whole church, in, in a sense, we, we return to the Psalms. Um, we often hear, if you're here with us on a regular basis, you'll know from the, the call to worship in our services that we often hear uh, a verse or two from the Psalms in a call to worship, and certainly at other times we read the Psalms here, um, but in summer we, we take time um, to go deeper into the Psalms. The Psalms have been the, the hymn book, the prayer book, the song book of God's people for thousands of years. And so we open this book each summer to, to hear its truth, learn from its wisdom, and be shaped by its vision of all of life. And that is all of life brought to God in prayer and worship. If we think about where we've been the last few weeks, we've been in the prophet Haggai before that, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' exposition of his teaching on the fulfillment of the law. Haggai, a prophecy is given to the people of God in the 5th century BC. But the Psalms, the Psalms are prayers, the Psalms are hymns, the Psalms are songs, the Psalms are the, the, the heart of the people of God being poured out before him in his presence in worship and in prayer. And that, that's key to our understanding of, of the Psalms. And so a recurring hope Every time we get to summer and every time we head into the Psalms, one of the, one of the things I hope for, for myself, uh, but also for all of us together here, is that we would grow in depth and maturity in our faith, that our Christian faith might grow in, in depth, it would go deeper, and in maturity, we would, we would grow in stature and wisdom through the Psalms, because why, why would that be the case? Obviously, we could generalize that and say, anytime we open the Bible, we want to be growing, that's certainly true, but in the Psalms, in a unique way in the Scriptures, because they are prayers, hymns, songs, we're confronted with the reality of the human condition in a way that we're not confronted with in other genres of text. We're confronted with the reality of the human condition, sinful human beings in a fallen world, where disaster strikes, where the wicked prosper, it seems to go well with them, Enemies beset us on all sides. God often seems distant and, and confusing to us. We can't comprehend Him or His actions. But the Psalms are also a place where we're confronted with the reality of God, a God who is faithful to His covenants, that is to his, the, the agreements, the promises that He has given to His people. He is faithful to those who trust in Him. He is a God who can be sought and found it's God, He's not a God whereabout we only learn information about Him or wisdom on right living, but we're, we, we see a God um, who can be sought, who can be found, with whom we can enter into relationship, with whom we can hold conversation, who we can speak to, who we can pour out our hearts to. A God in whom is fullness of joy, Psalm 1611, delight, 
and peace. It's all there in the Psalms. And so uh, immersing ourselves in the Psalms is, is inviting the Holy Spirit, that would be what I'm desiring for myself starting this evening and my invitation would extend to you. Let's be inviting the Holy Spirit to work in us and on us to give us or maybe increase in us a seriousness, a gravitas, and, and to mitigate against a shallowness and naivete. Um, that as saints here at Calvary Freiburg, we know what life is really like. Uh, talking to uh, people from our extended church family in the last few months, um, they've been through some difficult times. The loss of loved ones, death, um, can really just, it just explode into the middle of life and just tear a hole in our lives. And it's been interesting to say, to hear from them the experiences they've had. And I was heartbroken to hear one uh, young person say to me, you know, they said, Sam, in some cases it's the, the non-Christians, the non-believers, who have had more seriousness and gravitas in comforting me on the death of this person close to me rather than the Christians. Because among some of the Christians I've been, their faith is so shallow, they, they, they want to get back to happy clappy at the end of the service. Sort of a week after I lost this person in my life, they were saying, well, you know, God's there for you. You all right now? It's that kind of shallowness and naivete that we want to say no. We don't want to be those kind of Christians. We want to be Christians who have a seriousness, a gravitas. We know what life can be really like. We know about times of deep despair, but also exceeding joy. And that therefore we can fulfill the command that we're given in the New Testament to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That, that we understand uh, from the Psalms, that God invites us to bring the full spectrum of our lives to Him. And therefore, like the Psalmists, we must have at the last a, a joy, a, a dogged confidence, a, a sort of a refusal to let go of God, like Jacob had as he was wrestling with God, that we say, God, even though life can be so despairing, even though it can be so confusing, even though we don't fully understand, yet we, we have a joy in you and we're not going to let go of you and we, we yearn for you, we yearn to delight in you. That has to be what we take with us out of the Psalms. So that's my invitation um, to you for these next weeks. We'll be in the Psalms here at Church at Five for our final three Sundays before the summer break. But as Calvary Freiburg, we'll also be in the Psalms for the four summer Sundays where we all gather together as one congregation in the morning and that starts on August 21. So again, you can mark that in your calendars. There'll be no church at five on August 21, but everyone who's part of Calvary Freiburg has invited us to join us at 10 a.m. on August 21 and uh, we'll be in the Psalms that morning. So that, um, enough said there by way of general introduction to the Psalms. Let's turn now to our Psalm for this evening, which is Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. And uh, the title for this evening is taken from the final verse there, verse five, that Lawrence read for us, we will never be shaken. That's, that's where we want to be at the end of this psalm. We want to be those of whom it can be said we will never be shaken. So, Psalm 15, where do we, uh, where do we start? I think Psalm 15 draws out, at least as I was thinking about the psalm this week, this psalm draws out what is implied and communicated every time we gather together for worship as the Lord's people. 
I referenced it a moment ago, but our services here at Calvary Freiburg begin always with a call to worship. And then a hymn or a song of praise to our God follows that call to worship. And that's not by accident. It's not simply, oh, we'll we'll just throw together a worship service any old which way, but that's by design. That's the shape of Christian worship or of um, biblical worship right the way back to the people of God worshiping at the tabernacle in the wilderness. You can find this pattern of worship, for example, in Leviticus in chapter 9. What's happening in our worship service is that God is calling us to worship. There may be a service leader up here at the, at the pulpit here or from the worship team who is speaking a verse or speaking a word of greeting or of gathering, but that person is speaking in God's name. It's God who is calling us together to worship Him. God is gathering us as His people to come into His presence and worship Him. And so the question that David asks here in verse 1, let me just open my Bible as well, is a question that should be knocking on our hearts every time we come into a worship service, every time we stand here in the presence of the Lord. Lord, says David, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? In other words, who may enter into, who may remain in your presence? Who may enter into and who may remain in your presence? The the call to worship and the song of praise here, not just at our church, but at many churches who follow this order of worship, they are designed to communicate the majesty, the glory, the holiness, and the beauty of the Lord our God. I'll say that again. The call to worship and the song of praise, or the songs of praise, are designed to communicate, that is to confront the worshiper, to confront the congregant, to confront us here, gathered as the people of God, with the majesty, glory, holiness, and beauty of the Lord our God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Eternal One, the Almighty, the Ancient of Days, of whom the angels sing day and night, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Why is that? It's because when the call to worship occurs, when we're being called into God's presence to worship, we're not being called to sing as such or recite a psalm as such. We're not being called necessarily to speak or or even to listen. That's not the main point of what we're being called to do. That's obviously part of it. God's created us as beings who can speak, sing, and listen. But we're being called to worship that's why it's, it's, I know it's obvious, it's in the name, the call to worship, but that's what we're being called to do. We're being called to worship. That is, and this is my imperfect attempt to explain what worship is, to ascribe greatness, honor, and glory to the Lord. To ascribe greatness, honor, and glory to the Lord. Glory, of course, in the Hebrew comes from the word meaning heaviness, weightiness, the sense of, there's that sense about the Lord of he is, he is weighty and heavy and overwhelming. Worship the, your God and Him alone, says the Scripture. 
because to ascribe this kind of glory and honor and greatness to any creature is blasphemous idolatry because no creature in itself has the glory deserving of worship, has that weightiness, that beauty, that holiness. It's not worth being worshipped, if you will. That's where the word comes from in English, from worship in Middle English. So the call to worship confronts us with the awesome glory and holiness of God, in a sense, provoking the, the, the response. What's the only response to the glory and beauty and holiness and weightiness of the Lord? It is to worship, to, to ascribe glory. It's, it's, this is a, a help, but it's not a one-to-one um, equivalent, but when you're out and about with people, maybe wondering, not wondering, walking, in the Germans they wonder about, we walk through the forest, and we are up maybe on the Kipfels, and, and we see the sun set. What's the right response to the sunset? It's not to turn your face down and look away from it and keep going. That would be strange. The right response is to stop and behold that glory, and if you're with other walkers, to say, wow, look at that, to share that. That's sort of what is happening when we worship God. We're not to talk, turn away from Him, but we're to, to, be, to be ascribing, wow, greatness and glory to Him. The right response is to ask, therefore, when we are confronted with that glory, though, am I worthy? How can I stand in, this, in the presence of this God? How can I stay in His presence? And... David surmises correctly that, no, we are not worthy. He is not worthy to remain in God's presence, to enter into his presence. David then, in the next four verses of this psalm, says, the only one, the only one who may dwell in the Lord's presence, be in his sanctuary, is the one who is holy and righteous the one in whom there is no darkness or there is no impurity or there is no evil. Only the holy and righteous may dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord, may approach the throne of God and may enter into His presence. So there's a tension there, and that's good. This is the tension in a worship service which is resolved by a corporate confession of sin and is speaking of the promise of absolution from the New Testament. The, the idea is the, the call to worship happens, the, the songs of praise happen, we are confronted with the majesty and glory and beauty and holiness of this God and we realize, how can I even be here? Because I am unworthy, I am not holy, like Isaiah. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah chapter six, the call of Isaiah, and I am part of a people who has unclean lips. I can't remain here in the presence of God. And so that leads us to want to confess our sins, to make things right, and then to receive the absolution, the promise of Jesus Christ. If you confess your sins, He is faithful to wash you clean of all unrighteousness. That's the tension in a worship service. That tension is good. But Christians today, I think this is certainly what I notice, they talk easily and, dare I say, cheaply about the presence of God. Sometimes I hear Christians talking about the presence of God, it's almost as if they're referring to a magical force. 
and it's associated with certain places, and if I go to that place, then I'll enter in. They've got the presence of God. I can go into that place, and then great things may happen. I may be healed. I may be, have an encounter of a spiritual kind. So there's this sort of sense of the presence of God as a, a force that can be um, at least administered or, man, or perhaps manipulated if you're feeling uncharitable. At other times, it's almost thought of as a, as a therapeutic atmosphere, so in, in the sense of Coming to church is kind of stressful, there are other people, but if I go home, I can go into my room and put on a worship CD and then I can just be in the presence of God. It's sort of like therapy. That's how it's, that's how it's uh, talked about. And I think it's not wrong to go home and take some quiet time and listen to Christian music as far as it goes, but it's dangerous to, to talk flippantly about the presence of God because as the Scriptures point out, as this psalm is, is, is making clear, the presence of God is one of unapproachable light, consuming fire, overwhelming glory. The people of God of old, so I'm talking about uh, the Israelites in the wilderness having left Egypt, when they were confronted by the glory of God, they begged Moses, you go and speak to God. We don't want to hear His voice or we'll die. Just hearing His voice, we'll die. It's so holy we won't survive. You think about the parents of Samson, when an angel appeared to them to uh, prophesy to them that they would give birth to Samson, he would be a judge in Israel, they misunderstood, they thought that the angel was a manifestation of God, a theophany, and uh, they said to themselves after the angel had gone, we have seen the, the, the very face of God, we, we must now surely die. This is what we're dealing with when we come to deal with the presence of God. Moses looked upon the glory of God, and in a way that we don't fully understand, it remains mysterious to us. In some sense, the glory was reflected in Moses' face, and just one guy's face had to be veiled. Otherwise, it would have overwhelmed the people. This is not something to be taken lightly or flippantly. And that's why David confesses here, the only one who can be in your presence, in your sanctuary, God, is the one who has integrity, who's blameless of character, who does what is right, who's honest and speaks the truth, who doesn't slander and speak ill, but treats their neighbor rightly, who hates and despises evil, who honors the Lord's people, who's not slippery and double-minded, but who keeps their word and doesn't change their mind, who looks after the poor and doesn't exploit them, who upholds justice and refuses to see the innocent punished. That's what David is saying. That's the only one who can remain in or enter into the Lord's presence. It makes me remember the words of Peter when uh, speaking to Jesus at the Lake of Galilee. You remember what Peter said to Jesus? He said to Jesus, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Jesus hasn't even spoken about Peter's sin. It's not like he'd confronted Peter on, a, on an issue of sin. But Jesus had shown himself by a word of wisdom in that instance that he was the Son of God, and Peter was convicted. He's like, I'm an unholy, I'm a sinful man. I can't be in the presence of God. So Psalm 15 shows us holiness is serious. God is holy, and He calls us to be holy, 
and it's only those who are holy who may enter into his presence. Again, this is something that we want to have at the back of our minds. Every time we are called here to worship by the worship leader or the service leader, this is, in a sense, something that, that goes on every single Sunday. God is holy, he calls us to be holy, and it's only those who are holy who may enter into his presence. And Psalm, Psalm 15 shows us these, these examples here that I just went through a moment ago, integrity, blamelessness, honesty, they show us that our holiness, our holiness doesn't cut it. So we're not up, we don't live up to this standard. This is a Psalm of David, it says, above verse one there, but David is not talking about himself. This is not some kind of royal propaganda as if David is selling himself here as the ultimate priest king who can enter into God's presence in his own holiness and righteousness as if, he's, as if the answer would be to the, to the question, who is able to enter into your sanctuary that all the people are supposed to shout back, David. That's missing the point, not at all. David knew himself. David knew himself as the rest of the Psalms show. And again, this is why the Psalms can be so helpful in giving us that gravitas, that seriousness when it comes to understanding what life can be like in reality. David was a man, as we hear, every time his name is mentioned, but we'll say it again this time, after God's own heart. Yet he was capable and in fact committed horrific sins. David knew that, David knew himself. Psalm 51, the most famous psalm of repentance is from David when he was convicted of sin when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had had Uriah the Hittite killed and had taken Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and committed adultery with her. So David's not thinking of himself here as fulfilling these qualifications, but he is given eyes here to see things as they truly stand between God and us as men and women, human beings. And it's a, it's a sobering thing. It's sobering to think that even though God is our creator, we cannot really enter into his presence because we are not holy. And like David, like the ancient Israelites, again, we're not holy. Our sins are many and manifold, our walk's not blameless. The question is not, do we ever, do we never do something good? That's not the issue. It's not, in saying that we are, that our walk is not blameless or that we do things that are unrighteous, I'm not saying we never do anything good or that we're never honest or that we're never fair, but I'm saying all of us, if we're honest with ourselves and look at our lives, would know that there have been times, most likely within the past week, where, where we have broken each one of these precepts, where we haven't been blameless, where we've done things that were unrighteous, where we've lied or haven't told the whole truth, we've slandered and said things about others that we shouldn't have said, we've placed them in a light that make, didn't make them look good, that we haven't done right by our neighbor, that we often in fact do secretly love evil and we mock others who fear the Lord. We do try to wriggle out of the oaths and words that we've given and we are as changeable as the wind and we look for our own advantage. That's, that's just who we are as sinful human beings. And yet, we're all here this evening to worship God. We all wanna be dwelling in the sanctuary of the Lord. So what, what are we to do about this? God reveals to us in this text our, our deep need of redemption. Our deep need of redemption my deep need for redemption, your deep need for redemption. 
We cannot dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord unless we are redeemed. That is, unless we are saved out of our unrighteousness, saved out from under the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the evil one. That is, unless we are given a holiness that doesn't come from ourselves, because we can't produce a holiness that measures up. Now, not to annoy you or belabor the point, um, it's interesting, when I preach here at, uh, at our church, I think it's wise and, and good that when I stand here and I look out here, I consider each one of you here to be a Christian. I think that has to be the basis for healthy fellowship in the church. It would be sowing seeds of distrust and mistrust if you were thinking, the guy up there is talking to me as if he thinks I don't know the Lord. That would not be a helpful way to build Christian community. But before we go on, I think it's vital to understand this point uh, and, because it's, it's crucial to understand the Christian message. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, says, be holy for without holiness no one will see the Lord. Be holy for without holiness no one will see the Lord. This needs to be crystal clear. We need holiness if we would dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord. And, and I, want, I want myself, um, but I want all of us to see the, the earnestness of this. Again, this is serious. Without holiness, we cannot dwell on the holy mountain. We cannot live in God's presence. In fact, we remain separated from God. And so, and so this needs to be clear to us that this is the reality, this is the case. We can't paper this over, smooth this over. Um, and so therefore, there's an urgency there. And this should be clear to us when we speak to those who are not part of the church of Jesus Christ, who are not baptized and joined to Christ by faith, that they understand this, is, this urgency. There's a tendency in the church to extend, the, to extend being a child of God away from how John's gospel defines it, where John says to all who received him, Jesus Christ, he gave them the privilege of being called children of God. There's a tendency that says, no, it's not necessary to receive Jesus Christ in order to have the privilege, privilege of calling yourself a child of God. Merely by being human and by being created in the image of God, you are already a child of God and God is already your father. But that is papering over the urgency of what Psalm 15 is trying to show us. No, you need holiness if you want to be in the presence of God, if you want to be joined to God in right relationship. That need needs to be made clear and the urgency of that need needs to be made clear also. And so, moving forward now, this psalm, this is what the early church recognized, it fits in with what Jesus himself said in Luke 24, where he said that all of the, the scriptures speak of him and reveal him. This psalm is indeed predicting and imaging the ministry of Jesus Christ. If we say, who is the one who is holy, righteous, blameless, able to go up the holy mountain and enter into the presence of God, then Jesus Christ is that one. It's not David, it's the son of David, Jesus Christ. He's the one who's holy, 
who's blameless. Jesus is the one who does what is righteous. Jesus is the one upon whose lips there is no untruth, who utters no slander. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and therefore truly loves his neighbor. He's the one who despises evil and honors God's people. He keeps his oath, the oath he made to the Father when he was sent into the world, even though it costs him everything. Not your will be done, but not my will be done, but your will, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Who doesn't change his mind, can be, but can be relied upon. And Jesus who cares for the poor and upholds justice. Jesus is the one to whom Psalm 15 ultimately refers and in whom Psalm 15 is fulfilled. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, it's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the one who may enter into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. He does enter into the holy holies, the very presence of God, that's the symbolism here of the holy mountain. And in doing so, he conquers sin, death, and the devil, and he makes us holy. Listen to Hebrews 10 and verse 10. Hebrews 10, 10. We read there in the second part of the verse, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A few verses later in verse 15 of Hebrews 10, we read these words. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds, quoting the Old Testament. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, this is Hebrews 10, 18, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So Jesus Christ here, this is the, this is the word of Hebrews, Jesus Christ makes us holy. He's the one who makes holy. He gives us that holiness that comes from outside ourselves. And he does so, says Hebrews, by his sacrifice, by the sacrifice of his body. And, as we read, it is a once and for all thing. It happens once and is valid for all time. Jesus Christ makes us holy. He gives us that holiness that we don't have in ourselves. And the Holy Spirit then testifies and explains what this means. That Christ... <clears throat> In, in doing so, is instituting a covenant by shedding his blood on the cross. And this means that God is now writing his laws in our hearts and minds. And this, these, these, these things are all interrelated in the New Testament, and we won't go into great detail now, but in other places, we are shown that this refers to the Holy Spirit. That we are now no longer reliant upon stone tablets with laws written externally to us, upon which we look and realize, as David did in Psalm 15, I don't measure up, I'm not holy. Rather, now we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may fulfill the will of God. And then we are given this precious promise, verse 17, 
that our sins and lawless acts, our unholiness, our unrighteousness, will be remembered by God no more. Because Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, has made us holy, therefore, our sins and lawless acts, God will remember no more. In other words, they are forgiven, verse 18, and therefore, no further sacrifice is required. Again, that, that sacrifice of Jesus Christ is, is once and for all, which, which again, as we live the Christian life and as we, we do sin, we're not yet made perfect, we don't therefore lose the holiness that Christ has given us. We have been made holy once and for all. It's not that if we sin again, we need to now bring a further sacrifice. No, all of our sins and lawless acts are remembered by God no more than they're forgiven and no further sacrifice is required. And then Hebrews continues in chapter 10, the, verse, the next verse, verse 19, and I think we see here a, a, certainly an allusion to Psalm 15 and indeed to other Psalms that also talk about entering the presence of God. Therefore, on account of this reality, that Jesus Christ by his sacrifices made us holy, and that our sins and lawless acts are forgiven and remembered no more. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we now have, since we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I want, I want us to see how this dovetails with Psalm 15. You see, Psalm 15 we were confronted with the, the call to enter the, the, the presence of the Lord, the call to, to make our, our pilgrimage up the holy mountain to worship God, but then we were confronted by David's question, but, but who? who? Who can really do this? David, David's answer was, I can't because I'm not righteous, I'm not holy. But now, here, through the sacrifice of Christ and by His blood, we now have confidence we now have confidence to enter God's presence, the most holy place. The way to the sanctuary and God's holy mountain has been opened to us who were not holy because Christ has made us holy. Christ has made you holy. And so now, rather than, um, rather than shrinking back, rather than being fearful of approaching the unapproachable light, the consuming fire, the, the weighty glory of God, we can now, with full assurance that, that, that with the full assurance that faith brings, with, with confidence, draw near to God, go into His presence. And again, let me just add the last verse of this chapter in here, Hebrews 10, 39. There the writer says this, we don't, we here of the fellowship of faith, don't belong to those who shrink back from God and are destroyed but, but we belong to those who have faith and are saved. So it's by faith that we have assurance and confidence 
and are therefore saved. It's by faith now that we don't shrink back from the presence of God, but rather with confidence run towards God, run into His presence, run into the most holy place. And so, Hebrews says here, let us hold unswervingly, without wavering to this hope. Why? Because God, who gives us this word, this promise, is faithful. Because God is faithful, we we can hold without wavering to this word. So the key to holiness, it's, it's actually been flipped here. Do we see that? Instead, at Psalm 15, as when David originally wrote this psalm, the, 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 the sense was, I, would, I, I desire to enter into the presence of God, but then I'm confronted by His glory and majesty and beauty and power, and I look at my own unrighteousness and I have to shrink back. How can I possibly remain in His presence? But now, the key to holiness is in fact the other way. It's not to shrink back from the presence of God, from the Lord's sanctuary, but to enter into His presence with confidence, with faith grounded in what Jesus has done, that Jesus has made you holy. It's never by looking at our own sin and unrighteousness that we have the victory over it, but it's by trusting Him who is faithful and entering God's presence based on Christ's sacrifice. That is, by banking on the holiness that we have from Christ, indeed by looking to Christ Himself, that we overcome. Think about it this way, and one author put it this way, he says, you have to stop loving and pursuing Christ in order to sin, if you think about it. When you're pursuing love, when you're running towards Christ, you don't have the opportunity to wonder, am I doing this right? Did I serve enough this week? When you're running towards Christ, you're freed up to serve, love, and give thanks without guilt, worry, or fear. As long as you're moving towards Christ into His presence, you're safe. And as we begin to focus more on Christ, loving Him and others becomes more natural. As long as we're pursuing Him, we are satisfied in Him. It's when we stop entering into His presence. It's when we start to shrink back that we find ourselves restless and gravitating toward other means of fulfillment. And this is the key to holiness. On the one hand, we take by faith the promise that has been given here in Hebrews 10, that by His sacrifice on the cross, by the shedding of His blood, Jesus Christ has made us holy. We trust that. That's, by, that's what we call exercising faith. We trust that and we hold to it unswervingly because the one who has given us that promise is God Himself and He is faithful. And on the other hand, if we actually look at remaining sin and unrighteousness in our lives, we discover this, this great paradox, perhaps, that if we want to break with a sin, it's not by focusing on that sin that we then break with it, it's by focusing on Christ. It's by looking to Christ. It's by recognizing that Christ is more more attractive, more fulfilling, more satisfying than sin. That's what this author is getting at here. And so therefore, rather than shrinking back, it's it's those who shrink back now who have no faith, who are destroyed in their sin. 
And it's those who have faith and who now confidently enter into the presence of God, into the most holy place, not by their own holiness, but by holding unswervingly to the hope that we have from the promise we have of Him who is faithful, namely that we have that holiness from outside ourselves, from Jesus Christ who has made us holy. We are those who therefore are saved. So we hold to our hope unswervingly, not because of our own strength, but because He who promised is faithful. Or returning here to Psalm 15, to the the last verse, the reason we will never be shaken is because God is faithful. That's what it says here. Let's read it again. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Psalm 15, 5 and part C. In a sense, we could look at it this way. Jesus Christ has fulfilled this psalm. So he is the one who has done these things and he shall never be shaken. That is the promise of the Father to the Son. But in a sense, when we are united to Christ, when we are in Christ, then what is valid for Christ is valid for us. And therefore, we also can take this comfort that we will never be shaken because God is faithful. No matter what happens to us in this life, no matter how life might throw us around, this being able, this confidence and joy at being able to enter into the presence of God can never be taken away from us because Jesus has made us holy and because our sins are remembered by God no more. And that's why Hebrews says you can hold unswervingly to this faith because God is faithful. And using the language of Psalm 15, that means we will never be shaken. It can never be taken away from us because our God is faithful. And we want to move right now into communion. We want to take this promise as we enter into celebrating the Lord's Supper this evening. This promise is similar to the one we read in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, this is something that can never be taken away from us because God is faithful. We need not fear. Let me pray and then we'll celebrate Holy Communion. Lord Jesus, we look to you now as Hebrews tells us as the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray that you would guide our our view to you, that we would look to you, that we would place our eyes on you, that we would take our you would take our eyes away from that which so easily entangles and besets us. That we would understand this principle that we should look to you, that we should see you for who you truly are, that because of your sacrifice and because of the promise that the Father has made and the Spirit applies to our lives, we now no longer have to shrink back from the presence of God. We now no longer have to say with Peter, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, but we can enter with confidence and with joy into your presence. And we can be there refreshed and renewed. Not only can we receive when we partake of Holy Communion, the reality of the promise that we just read in 1 John 1, 9, that you are faithful to forgive us of all our unrighteousness, but that we receive your Holy Spirit, we receive your promises, we receive your comfort, 
and we receive the, the saving of our souls. And so we pray, Lord, uh, give us this joy. Um, give us this faith to rest in the promise. I pray for those this evening who are um, fearful and anxious as they look at their lives, as they look at their sin, and that they would be comforted, that they would hold fast to this promise that um, the Lord, our God, does not remember their sin anymore. I pray for faith to trust the promise, Jesus, that you have made us holy. And I pray um, for the Spirit to energize our hearts that the, um, the consequence we draw from that truth is not to think, well, it doesn't matter how I live or what I do because Jesus has made me holy, but rather your Spirit would um, energize us to seek your presence evermore and with confidence enter in that our lives would be as Romans says, an act of worship. We pray this prayer to the Father in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.